You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, full earnings coverage ahead. Of course, as Peloton plunges after issuing pretty disappointing forecast, we'll break down the numbers. Plus, we push ahead to earnings out after the bell from chip giant NVIDIA. Does the AI rally have staying power? And speaking of semiconductors, look, we're looking at the communications giant Huawei, maybe building a secret network of chip fabrication center across China. We'll bring you the why from our Bloomberg exclusive. But first, Ed, let's check in on these markets because, well, even though we've got anxiety, it feels as though a short squeeze in the bond market is helping lift the tech stocks higher. We're looking at more than 1.6%. Let's call it on the Nasdaq, on the upside. There is still much hope on the earnings still to come, even though some of those earnings we're about to dive into were looking pretty ugly. I'm looking at a two-year yield being squeezed higher. Therefore, the borrowing costs come down nine basis points, almost 10. We're seeing it across the entire curve. And you're seeing it across the entire world. You're seeing really bond buying across the UK and Europe here in the US as well. Many feeling that basically we've been some technical elements at play here. We've been soiling off so hard, so fast. And some ugly data when you're looking at the PMI data, certainly slowing in Europe, seeing weakness here in the US means maybe that bad news is good news. At least on the day, we're seeing the Golden Dragon China Index. Of course, there's the Nasdaq Golden Dragon. Just shining a light that actually there's been buying in the Chinese names as well, even after we've seen such a sell-off on the CSI 300, for example, at the trading at the lowest since November. Moving on and look at what's happening in terms of the world of Bitcoin. Look, we're amid this macro picture of bad news being good news. The dollar is selling off, as many feel that perhaps the Fed can't tighten into that sort of moon music. Dollar goes lower, Bitcoin goes up by a percentage point, Ed. But go into the micro, the earnings. Yeah, the big story, NVIDIA, expectations incredibly high. What we're forecasting is top-line growth, 65% to $11 billion in the fiscal second quarter. Institutional investors want even more. They're looking for $12 billion of sales. Data center, the majority of that. Does the AI story have staying power? Is there still demand for the H100s? What about the GH200, the next-gen GPU with greater memory capacity? How does that drive the story for NVIDIA for the rest of the year? Options market, pricing a 10% swing. This is almost 4% of the S&P 500. It is more than 30% of the NASDAQ 100's rally year to date. We care and we cannot wait for these earnings after the bell. The other end of the scale, opposite story is Peloton. The stock at a record low 
low after its fiscal fourth quarter earnings. It's guiding for the fiscal first quarter revenue of 600 million, way below expectations, even at the high end of its given range. The story in the quarter gone? Well, the seat post issue. A recall, 750,000 people say, yeah, I do want a new seat post. That was way above what Peloton expected. Subscribers hit pause. Subscribers lost in the quarter, 29,000. The story of Peloton going from a hardware maker to a subscription and software-based provider is unraveling a little bit. Let's get more on these Peloton earnings. I'm bringing Shweta Kajuria, Evercore ISI analyst. Shweta has an inline rating on the stock and a $10 price target. Shweta, what worried you most about what you heard from Peloton? Well, thanks for having me, Ed. It's always great to be on. Um, there are a few things. One is that Peloton, it's clear, it is clear that they are having some uh, potentially structural issues in terms of being their ability to sell more hardware. The, the fundamental question for Peloton remains whether uh, there are already enough number of households and owners for uh, for uh, fitness equipment already. And the reason why I say that is because, yes, uh, it was a seasonally soft quarter, but they also changed pricing on their hardware. They've also been marketing against it. And Peloton is a very, very well-known brand, and yet they came in below expectations, understood that the seat recall did not help their brand image and did not help in terms of the pausing of the subscription. So that fundamental question is in play in terms of the sustainability of top-line growth. Yeah. The second thing is profitability. Even on EBITDA, the EBITDA for the reporting quarter came in below expectations, and their guidance also uh, is below where the street was for the first fiscal quarter. That said, they guided to positive free cash flow in the back half of uh, next fiscal year. And partly it is because they are going to be leaning into the holiday quarter. What this tells us is it is very difficult to drive top line growth as well as show meaningful expansion in the bottom line. And for this company, this balance is going to be the biggest challenge. How are they going to show sustainable positive free cash flow and at the same time drive top line growth? And we are seeing that they are having challenges already. So what's the answer? I mean, BMO Capital Markets saying, I like the turn of phrase, they should bear hug their loyalists and basically be smaller, be healthier, be more niche. Should we remind ourselves that this isn't a mass market player? I would agree with that. I mean, we had a tactical underperform into the print for that reason, because we thought that profitability for the quarter is going to be in question. Um, and that, that came true. And I think that at this point that I, I would... Uh, somewhat agree with that. Now, the, the question is, can Peloton be a standalone company for the foreseeable future? Is, is this something that, that can last as a standalone company? And, and I would argue that it may not. I mean, the, mm. as soon as they get to positive free cash flow on a sustainable basis with some sort of modestly higher top line growth, people, will, they, they, the company may be looking for acquisition targets. Shweta, your $10 price target, your inline rating on the stock is in review after the numbers. Do you assess this company as a technology company or does it just make fitness equipment? With Barry as the CEO, I would have to say they're pivoting to a technology company. And the reason why I say that is because they are managing the company, the leadership team is managing the company as a technology company with a great focus on the subscription piece. It is clear that that's where the intrinsic value of the company is. The, the retention of the subscribers is high, intrinsically high still, even though the churn was uh, sequentially higher in the quarter. Uh, but that's where that's where the value of the company is, and the company uh, is actually 
uh, focusing on the subscription piece. And some of the examples are that they are allowing the, the three tiers of the subscription, that they have several hundreds of thousands of uh, monthly active users for the free subscription tier. They are also expanding those tiers into different price points. They are focusing yeah. more on uh, and their ability to enter these households at a, at a lower price point. So I think that that's their focus. The question is whether it's going to work or not. That's the question, Shweta Kajaria. We want to thank you, Shweta, because I understand you're on vacation and you've come on to discuss all of this, digest the numbers and give it to our audience. We really appreciate it. Uh, (laughs) Great to stick with you. I mean, let's get on, though, because we've got other earnings that are all important for the direction of the entire market at this stage. NVIDIA, the chip company, of course, front and center when it comes to this AI frenzy. And it's out with earnings tonight. We've been talking about it all week. Moonbeg Intelligence Senior Semiconductor Analyst Kunjan Zabani is here with us. And Kunjan, so much baked in. People raising their price targets into these numbers. Do you think we're going to see the sort of 65% increase in revenue the market's anticipating? I do think there's a high confidence we see that number. And the primary driver of that is going to be their data center segment um, and driven by their A100s and H100 hardware systems. Remember, data center is estimated to almost double on a year-over-year basis and add about north of $15 billion to a company that did $27 billion last year. Uh, there could be some addition from the gaming, but it's primarily going to come from the data center segment. You know, you're coming at this from the Bloomberg intelligence analysis perspective, right? The story is, does the AI momentum have staying power? So what do you need to hear from NVIDIA to believe that, you know, the hyperscalers and the LLM developers and everyone else continues to buy into AI for the rest of the year and beyond? I mean, look, since the last running call, we have seen a lot of demand strength signals that the demand is there and rising. Uh, the two key things we want to hear is, can they ship to the demand? And are they able to get successfully the additional supply here? And also a validation on uh, visibility and backlog orders going into the next year. You know, I think for me, Caroline, the big question as well is technology leadership. You know, we've covered on the show AMD has its own offering in the GPU or GPU-CPU hybrid space. Intel wants a piece of the pie. I wonder how they maintain their leadership. It does come down to market dynamics here, Kunjan. And really, it's felt like NVIDIA is the only game in town. Just look at its trillion-dollar market valuation when it comes on bets and AI. Is it or are other players playing catch-up here? I mean, look, it's a, the most fastest growing market right now in semiconductors. So definitely other players are trying to get a piece of it and are playing catch up. We don't expect NVIDIA to lose its leadership anytime soon. But I think there's definitely room for other players to grab a piece of pie, which is, again, a huge pie. And a small percentage could add in the order of billions of dollars to their revenues. When the bar is high and when the stakes are high, there's always room for disappointment. Yeah. How worried are you about the supply issue? Um, now, TSMC being able to hand over enough chips. I think, look, the supply is definitely going to be, like I said, a key factor going into today's call. Um, in the near term, I'm not as worried because the company seems confident that they've garnered enough supply to meet at least the guided numbers, which are driven by them. Um, I would definitely like to see if they can meet the long term, especially the 2024 numbers, and gather supply for that. You remind us something very important, that the guided numbers did come from the company, and that's why that note from Citi about institutional investors seeing even greater top-line growth is worth bearing in mind. Kunjan Shabani of Bloomberg Intelligence, thank you.
Time for talking tech. First up, India is now the first country to land a spacecraft near the moon's South Pole. The Chandrayaan-3 launched last month and is carrying a rover, now tasked with analyzing the chemical makeup of the moon's surface. Russia recently tried to land in the same area but crashed into the moon following an engine malfunction. And foreign investors are selling off China's blue chip stocks, extending the streak of outflows over the course of 13 days, the longest on record. Data tracked by Bloomberg found that investors Investors have offloaded the equivalent of $10.7 billion between August 7th and 18th. Some of the stocks most sold include solar company Langji, EV maker BYD, and medical supply maker Mindre. And speaking of which, telecommunications giant Huawei may be building a secret network of chip fabrication centers across China. That's according to the Semiconductor Industry Association, the leading global trade group for chips. Huawei has been blacklisted by the U.S. Department of Commerce amid tensions with China, and a shadow chips manufacturing network would allow the company to skirt those U.S. sanctions. Caroline. We're going to be digging into that story so much a little bit later in the show, but for here and now, let's just talk about a meeting that's going on. It's the SEC perhaps imposing new requirements on hedge funds and private equity firms to disclose fees, which is aimed at impacting, of course, investors, helping them. We'll see what the market makes of it. Blumer Shanali Basak is here. And Ultimately, why are venture capital companies that we talk about a lot of in this show, like Andreessen Horowitz, worried about these new rules? Andreessen Horowitz, and remember, you have to think about these other funds like Tiger Global and D1 that have been traditional head funds moving more into the private equity structure, venture capital structures. What they're initially concerned about is straightforward, very much new rules for a $17 trillion industry that had not faced this much disclosure or scrutiny before. But the industry has ballooned quite meaningfully. I will also say, even though they're concerned about these new rules, one of which involves sidecar vehicles, and these are preferential treatment which often apply to large investors mm-hmm. that tend to co-invest and do all sorts of other deals with them, the SEC is trying to level the playing field in terms of fee structures. Now, importantly, there have already been large wins for the investment industry when it comes to the rules as they have been put out today. When you look at the open meeting, they are still very much discussing these rules, but the commission is made out of five members, in which three of them are Democratic expected to vote in favor of these rules. Where the industry has already won is this idea of a grandfathering provision. So existing agreements with investors will continue to live on. Mm. So this will be for new new investors and new agreements that are being made. There's also an idea here of indemnification. There was a worry that the standard of negligence would also be made more strict, which would, in theory, according to industry participants, restrict certain forms of risk-taking because it would be easier to sue your investment advisor. There's another thing I want to pull up here. Let's uh, pull up a screen here from Pangea's Terry Haynes, who's already been weighing in with a lot of doubt. Remember, the MFA has already said it could potentially sue within two weeks, but then Terry Haynes also believes that the SEC gets stopped in its tracks and will ultimately get shut down in its venture here because the courts may put this plan on hold and the court, lower courts won't be convinced that the SEC would be likely to prevail on it appeal. So there's a lot of doubt on how much these rules see the light of day, but certainly it is a moment of tension between these private funds and their main regulators. All eyes on how much transparency ultimately investors get. Shanali Basak, we thank you so much for the breakdown. Meanwhile, coming up, look, we're going to be talking to the CEO of financial platform, Ramp. This is the company securing some $300 million in additional funding. Eric Lyman's coming in with us. From New York, from San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology.
everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. now for work shifting. It's where we look at the changing landscape of the labour market amid some advances in technology. And today we're focused on how corporate legal departments, well, they're tentatively embracing artificial intelligence by harnessing AI to do the grunt work on tasks like reviewing simple contracts, in-house counsel that can reduce the time and the money, of course, needed to perform those tasks to a fraction of what would be needed by humans. But since generative AI is new, the industry is navigating critical questions around the security and the quality of the data. So slowly, slowly we go. Meanwhile, let's look at another way in which work has shifted and maybe got a little bit cheaper for you because financial services platform Ramp has just raised $300 million for a total valuation of $5.8 billion. We spoke with one of the investors, Keith Raboy of Founders Fund, who had some thoughts on, well, AI more broadly in the space. Take a listen. And some of these technologies are disruptive and they disrupt incumbents and their powers. And some actually enable incumbents to get stronger. AI is most likely going to generate more power for large tech, large market cap tech companies, not really be a substitute. And if there is a substitute, it's probably going to be open AI, which we've invested in, fortunately. He's also invested in RAMP. And RAMP CEO Eric Lyman is here on the back of his fundraise. And we're not going to start on AI, even though that's where Keith was going at that point. But we're going to go on this environment for fundraising. You've got it. You've got the money. But you have significantly cut your valuation. Why do that? Why Was it just in, you needed the money in the here and the now? Um, this was an opportunistic raise. Really, for us, we were approached by our investors who were excited by the extraordinary growth. Um, we announced that we were the fat, um, we reached over $300 million in annualized revenue, less than three and a half years uh, from the launch of our product, which was one of the fastest ever. And really, this is about investing in customers. Most of our competitors and most of the industry are spending less on their customer experience. Ramp's purpose is to help our customers' businesses be more profitable, be more efficient with every dollar spent. And we view this as an extraordinary opportunity to increase not only our balance sheet, but also increase the pace at which we can invest um, in innovations for our customers. So we are super excited to do this. Eric, on the 300 million in annualized revenue, there will be lots of founders watching this show who may be able to raise opportunistically, as, as you put it, 
or face you know unfavorable terms how much emphasis did investors put on that metric and what other metrics did they want to see from you before they signed off on the round of course. I mean, I think for most investors, it's a simple proposition. Is this a large market? Are you building a product that can serve an extraordinary number of customers? Uh, is this structurally a great business? And last, is this a, a product that customers love? Um, for us, what made this raise simple was first the growth of the business. Since the last raise, transaction volume on Ramps platform has increased by a factor of over six into the tens of billions of dollars per year. Uh, we are the number one rated spend management platform uh, in the United States. Um, uh, and we believe there's no better deal in business. Um, we help the average business save 3.5% per year uh, on their expenses from corporate cards, expense management to accounting automation. Uh, and I think investors were really excited um, you know, for the prospects of Ramp taking on what has been a, a pretty sleepy industry classically. How do you take it on with yeah. this $300 million? Is it more about marketing spend? Is it organic growth? Is it inorganic and purchasing? Yeah, it's two sets of things. First, it's that customer experience. So at the time of the last raise, we had saved all-time all our customers $100 million. Now that figure is over $600 million and over 8.5 million uh, hours of work. And we've done that by launching into new verticals. Uh, when we last launched, we were only a corporate card with expense management. Uh, we're now the fastest-growing accounts payable platform in the U.S., recently expanded into procurement, travel, and the like. So some of this is making the experience better for the average customer, and some of this is reaching more businesses. Uh, the number of businesses that use Ramp today, number over 15,000, whether that's small businesses to leading publicly traded companies. Uh, and so a lot of this really is um, expanding and taking market share. Uh, uh, Eric, your, your pitch is that incentives are aligned, right? What's good for your customers is good for you and what's good for you, and vice versa. Does that sound too good to be true? You know, we, we think um, aligned businesses and customer-obsessed businesses win. Um, I think for too long, uh, this was an industry where if you were a bank, you could move money, and if you weren't, you couldn't. And as the world went from no phones to flip phones to iPhones, your credit card never got better. Uh, and I think Ramp's growth really is a reflection of our end alignment, uh, really is the, the winning recipe. Helping customers spend less, uh, we think in the long run, will allow us to grow faster as we have, will allow our businesses to be more profitable and long-term enduring, which we also think makes for a better line, bottom line, not just for customers, but for Ramp as well. It's in interesting. Keith was sort of saying, look, this is a moment where companies have to get more realistic about what they're worth, about valuations. You've clearly done that and taken it on in this opportunistic fashion. What are the other headaches for you, though, in this macro environment? Is it talent? Is it you know, just con continuing to get more clarity on where this economy goes? How do you ensure that you can grow the business in a mindful manner right now? Yeah, um, it's a really great question. And in part, this is exactly why we're so excited. You know, I think that this is an uncertain rate environment. You know, this is one of the fastest rise in interest rates really in 40 years. Uh, and to have additional capital to almost double the balance sheet and be able to invest deeply, uh, no matter the nature of the market, was super excited. Uh, I think to your point, um, so many other firms are hiring less. Uh, many are doing reductions in force. Uh, so many other firms are making the customer experience worse in order to shore up margins. And for us, as much as we've grown, we truly believe we have 99% plus of the market to go. 15,000 businesses, right. a lot of businesses, right. but there's millions of businesses that could be using Ramp. Uh, Eric, one word answer. Do you need more sales reps or more engineers? Oh, both. 
Both. All right. We're, we're I, I meant your condition, climb. one word. <laughs> no, it was, you, you met my condition, $300 million round, a down round, but it still sounds like you guys are in growth mode. Thank you very much. Okay, welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Uh, let's check in on these markets because actually we grind higher. We're managing to shake off some of the anxiety because today bad news is good news. Today we saw the economic data coming from the US and notably from Europe. Those PMIs just looking ugly, but does that mean that bank, central banks have to pull back on their focus on inflation? We're seeing Nasdaq 100 up 1.4%. The two-year yield sinking dramatically. And in fact, we're seeing bond yields pull down across the curve and across the globe. We're down nine basis points. This is many are talking about a short squeeze, how far, how fast we've already run up in terms of borrowing costs. Bitcoin up 1.9%, almost 2%, higher on the day, 26,300 as we see the dollar weaken. Moving on and look at some individual names that were so important to this market today. Peloton, 24, I mean, a quarter of its market capitalization wiped out because they are losing sales, they're losing, losing subscriptions, and they're not turning around this business quickly enough. Doesn't need to become, once again, more niche. We're down. We're seeing Netflix, though, on the higher side. Netflix having a great day as we see some particular data coming from Antenna saying it looks as though we're still seeing subscriptions added in the United States as we see that crackdown on passwords. And NVIDIA, it's up 2.3%. This has been a bit of a roller coaster over the last few days, Ed, as we look towards the all-important earnings after this bill. Bell, can we drive higher in terms of revenue by some 65%? But they're some of the publicly traded companies. We're talking yeah. private though now. Um, mega day in public markets, but so many headlines in private markets and money being raised. Cell Therapy contract manufacturer Solaris has raised $255 million from investors to build a high-tech plant over in New Jersey, which is an important U.S. hub for pharmaceutical industry production and research. Joining us here in San Francisco is Fabian Gerlinghouse, co-founder and CEO of Solaris. So this business is South San Francisco-based, but you've raised a ton of cash to build a very high-tech, robotic, software-driven plant in New Jersey. Why New Jersey? That's correct, Ed. Uh, New Jersey is a hub for biopharmaceutical manufacturing in the U.S., so it's a natural next step before expanding to Europe and ultimately to Asia. Uh, so delighted to announce that uh, today uh, we raised a $255 million blockbuster Series C to accelerate access to life-saving cell therapies. That's what we're up to at Solaris um, uh, by uh, uh, deploying our fully automated cell manufacturing platform, the Cell Shuttle, in smart factories yes. around the globe to meet total patient demand. So the idea is that if you are, uh, for example, Bristol, one of the people uh, or companies in your round, developing a cell therapy, you can scale up, help them take it from a research-driven project to a commercial project. How does it work? That's exactly right. Let's, let's take a look at the problem first. Um, cell therapies are a breakthrough in modern medicine that have proven their potential to cure very aggressive uh, diseases that were previously untreatable. Uh, we've actually seen children with very aggressive types of blood cancers get cured, they're cancer-free 10 years later. But right now, cell therapy manufacturing with manual conventional methods is expensive, failure-prone, and impossible to scale. So that limits access, and as a result, patients are dying on the wait list. So l let me make this really real. Ed, imagine, imagine that your child has cancer, and there is an FDA-approved cell therapy on the market that could post most likely would cure your child. 
Yet your kid still dies because the patients are unable to access these cell therapies because of the manufacturing bottleneck. That's the problem that we're solving at Solaris. Uh, Caroline, that is a, a, a reality that no one wants to imagine. But you know, Fabian makes a good point. FDA approval. There's regulatory risk in this. Yeah, emotive, Fabian, is what you're sparking there. But to reality, regulatory approval is necessary. What are the risks around that? Because that could deeply hold back the way in which your business grows. Uh, absolutely. So um, the cell shuttle platform that we've developed is actually not a medical device, so it doesn't need to go through its own clinical trials before it can be used. Uh, what does need FDA approval are the clinical trials uh, by the sponsors, that is to say the biotech companies, the pharma companies, our clients, and uh, our IDMO uh, business actually uh, supports them through this process with regulatory support. Okay, so I'm sure that to grease the wheels of people wanting to come back and use your technology, they're going to have to see some regulatory approval. So still some lines of things that you can't control. What you can control, though, is how you market yourself, not just, as you say, in the U.S. and New Jersey, but also worldwide. You just mentioned Europe and Asia. Where exactly are you looking there? Yeah, so uh, locations aren't finalized in, in Europe and Asia, but um, as we uh, mentioned, uh, we just announced uh, that uh, we're opening up the world's first IDMO smart factory in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Um, that's a site with 118,000 square feet. That's about the size of two football fields um, filled with robots, all manufacturing cures for cancer in a fully automated fashion. Uh, we're actually deploying up to 50 cell shuttles in there. Uh, that'll get us up to about 40,000 cell therapy doses uh, produced per year. And uh, just to put that into perspective for you, that's about 10 times as many cell therapy doses uh, produced out of a facility of the size compared with uh, manual conventional cell therapy manufacturing methods by conventional CDMOs. So um, 10x in productivity. How are we achieving this? Uh, well, uh, we've designed, built, tested, a fully automated robotic cell time manufacturing solution called the Cell Shuttle. The cell shuttle is uh, about the size of an Amazon truck. Um, inside, you've got about two robots, and uh, then uh, it, it combines uh, the functionality of about 100 different benchtop instruments in one machine. Uh, net effect, it brings down the uh, cost of manufacturing and the uh, uh, labor. Uh, we're actually bringing down labor and facility size by about 90%. Uh, so what that means is that with um, a facility uh, of the same size and the same workforce, we can actually produce 10 times as many cell therapy uh, doses per year compared with conventional manufacturing approaches. So you've not selected a site for a third US plant or a, or a European site, but you're looking. We've got two sites in the U.S. at this point. Um, we've got the site in South San Francisco where we're based uh, for preclinical process development, clinical manufacturing, and then the New Jersey site for uh, clinical and commercial scale manufacturing. And as a next step, uh, we're going to open up a site in Europe uh, in 2024 and then thereafter go to, uh, go to Asia as well. Well, when you do announce that site, you can come back on Bloomberg Technology and tell Caroline it. and I yeah, where it is. Take you up you, on it. Fabian, you mentioned a lot of big numbers. One you didn't mention was your company's valuation. 255 million for a Series C is a lot of money. Are you unicorn at least at this stage? It's a, it's a fair question. Um, respectfully, we're uh, still a private company, so we're not disclosing the precise valuation. What I can tell you is that um, 
This is a massive round with a massive step up in valuation. So while everybody else in this market uh, seems to be raising either flat rounds or down rounds, we raised at a massive step up in valuation. So we're very happy with the result. On top of that, uh, it's a blockbuster round, $255 million. Uh, that's more money than other companies have raised in their IPO. Mm. Uh, so we're very uh, proud of this result. And I think it certainly reflects uh, the excitement and the confidence in the investor community uh, for what we've built already, the speed with, what we, with uh, which we've built uh, the cell shuttle platform, and uh, the future, uh, future strategy, the plans for what's to come, as, uh, as well as the data that we've produced and uh, published on our website today. And to be fair, Ramp had raised $300 million, so slightly pipping you to the post, but it is still a phenomenal amount of money, Fabian, and clearly your optimism is there. Let's look at who invested in you. Coke Disruptive Technologies, the VC arm of, of Coke Industries, of course. We've also got some individuals, and most notably, you've got some sort of strategic investors. Can you talk to us a little bit about the likes of Bristol Myers Squibb? Like, are they customers, future customers, as well as being backers? Absolutely. So, uh, as you mentioned, uh, our round was led by Coke Disruptive Technologies with um, new investors uh, participating, specifically DFJ Growth, uh, Bloomberg's family office, uh, Willett Advisors, and um, Bristol Myers Squibb. And then we had really strong participation from our insiders as well, notably uh, Eclipse, uh, 8VC, and the Sheng. I'm very grateful for all of their support. Um, Bristol Myers Squibb, as you mentioned, uh, global pharmaceutical company, uh, a cell therapy leader. Uh, we're very proud uh, to have them as an investor in this round. And we're certainly also working with them on the corporate partnership. So uh, more news to come in, uh, in the near future here. Just to point out that Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, is, of course, uh, the parent company of Bloomberg Media and Bloomberg Television. Final question from me, and I want to go back to what Caroline was asking you. If your research stage customers don't get those FDA approvals, you can't ramp up to the commercial stage of output. You know, how, how do you make sure that that process does happen? That's, that's a really good point. So in most cases, there's a clinical trial required. There's uh, one exception. Um, when, an, when a drug is already FDA approved on the market, it already has FDA approval. Uh, so then if, you, if we stick exactly to the process uh, that this pharma company is running internally today, and uh, we just switch out the underlying manufacturing platform to the cell shuttle, um, in principle, that does not necessitate a new clinical trial, uh, but we can move into manufacturing directly. So uh, there, are, there are shortcuts. Fabian, great to have some time with you. Thanks for bringing the enthusiasm. The drive Fabian Gerlinghouse, of course, co-founder and CEO of Solar is there. Meanwhile, coming up, look, in an effort to skirt US restrictions, Huawei may be secretly building a network of semiconductor production. We'll have more on the warning against the blacklisted company and how the Biden administration may take action. Meanwhile, let's go more global as well and focus on India for a moment. Snap, as we head to spray, we're just seeing it, what, barely moving, but the parent company of Snapchat is appointing a former Google executive to lead its India operations. And of course, it's striving to become a more major social media force there in a key growth market. The company also announced a new localized organizational structure for the region. And the teams on those are going to be in charge of content, they're going to be in charge of the creator ecosystems, and they're all going to be reporting to the new exec, who's Pulvit Trivedi. From New York, this is Rubo Technology.
What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We want to return to a story that we mentioned earlier about Huawei. A trade group is warning that the telecommunications company might be secretly building a network for chips production in an effort to skirt U.S. curbs. For more, let's bring in the reporter who broke that story, Bloomberg's Ian King, with me on set in San Francisco. This is not straightforward. Explain the basics of what you found. And last year, as we know, uh, sorry, not last year, uh, Huawei has essentially been blacklisted by the U.S. government. Um, it's very difficult for US-based companies to supply them with technology and you know most important among that is basically cutting Huawei off from its supply of chips and what this report says and it backs up some reporting that we've done earlier is that really Huawei is trying to go to do a DIY effort to build a local network that can replace that overseas supply of these crucial components which will keep it in business keep it able to make these you know telecommunications systems that are its primary business okay so basically it uses other companies other names to try and get equipment that otherwise it wouldn't be able to get hold of, Ian. Who's been shining a light on all of this? How have you managed to, to realize this is occurring? Yeah, I mean, we originally broke the news that one of these Chinese companies was in fact connected to Huawei, um, that was a, a fact, effectively a shell company using government money, buying US and other equipment to continue Huawei's ability to get these components. Um, the U.S. Department of Commerce went on to blacklist that company. And now what we've found is more industry information um, and got a reaction out of the U.S. government that says it wasn't just that particular company. It was other companies as well that are indeed already on the blacklist. They've continued or they've stockpiled U.S. equipment, other foreign equipment to stay in production. And they are, in fact, even though the name doesn't say so, supplying Huawei with some of the components or attempting to supply Huawei with some of the components that it needs. KYC, you know your customer. Boy, it must be hard for a lot of these companies right now. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, where, where does the burden of proof lie? Where does the investigation lie? Um, and it, it's a complicated process. Tracing individual chip shipments and things like that is, is next to impossible. Where is a, a tighter area of focus is that some of these chip making pieces of equipment are worth tens of millions of dollars, even hundreds of million dollars. So obviously there aren't as many of those. They're an easier thing to track where they're going, who's using them and what they're using them for. But nonetheless, you know, because regulations are evolving and, and are being effectively tightened, this is a, a kind of a moving process. I just want to point out that Huawei, PXW, Fujian Jinhua, the other companies identified by the SIA and reported by Bloomberg did not respond to request for comment. You noticed that, you noted that in your prior reporting, the BIS then acted based on that prior reporting. What have they said in response to this latest article? Yeah. I mean, we put that in our story and they said, look, we're not surprised that, you know, Chinese government money is going into efforts to, to try to keep this enterprise underway. Um, if we perceive this to be a threat to national security, we will take the action required, is, to paraphrase what they said. And obviously that implies that we might see more, more restrictions. Ian, it's an amazing piece of reporting. Thank you very much with your colleague Debbie Wu of the Taiwan Bloomberg's Ian King. Thanks for breaking it down. Meanwhile, we've got some more breaking news for you. WeWork now, of course, is understand a lot of stress on the business. It's rounding up advisors again for help on a restructuring, struggling with a really heavy debt load, of course, some poor financial performances that have come to light of late. And of course, earlier this month, they told investors there's substantial doubt about its ability to stay in business. It wants to avoid Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing, and it wants to restructure its debts outside of court. So understanding we've, that they've hired real estate advisor Hilco Global. Once again, it's tapping the consultant Alvarez and Marcel, and they've re-engaged law firm Kirkland and Ellis. Basically, they need to kind of reduce and get out of some of some very expensive leases in their more expensive markets. The company is saying to us at the moment they're investing in their product offerings and taking necessary steps to reduce rent and tenancy costs. We're off by 16%, but it's a penny stock, Ed. Yep, company we continue to track and its future. Now for today's Going Viral. We're watching what's trending online and today it is the release of the latest Star Wars series on Disney+. Plus. Look, it's the first and the second episode have been dropped for Ahsoka. It debuted on the streaming platform last night. Ed, I know you're a bit of a Star Wars man. Did you watch it? Did you like it? I, I absolutely watched episode one. I forwent episode two. I saved it for later in the week. Uh, but it's just incredible to see on everything from X to Instagram to Google Trends, people talking about Ahsoka. You know, it's a yeah. really highly anticipated next uh, spin-off from the Star Wars universe. And kind of some emotion around it, right? One of the lead characters. Yes. No spoilers about any of what's happening inside the episodes right. but on externally they actually lost a key character died suddenly in Italy over the or in Ithaca I believe it was yeah, so never any spoilers on Bloomberg Technology, but Ray Stevenson, who played one of the villains or plays one of the villains in the Ahsoka series, did pass away in May of this year after production had wrapped. And there was a tribute to him, um, which loads of, of people have talked about on social media. And when I posted to X that I was going to be watching it, actually quite a few people replied and said, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice moment for Ray Stevenson, who has a lot of fans out there. Yeah, it certainly does. Meanwhile, I mean, we're going to dive into what's happening more broadly in Hollywood right now.
Yeah, all of this because the focus of Hollywood right now is studios release the details of their contract proposal to the film's industry's screenwriters. It's the latest in their bid to end a months-long strike that stalled production and delayed new releases across the entertainment industry. That is why we are so focused right now on the content slate. We're going to bring in Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, who leads our screen time coverage. Lucas, you've tracked this day by day. What is the latest on these negotiations? And the, the latest is, is not good, I would say. You know, there oh. had been a, a resumption in conversations between... There had been a resumption in conversations between the Hollywood studios and screenwriters. And the, you know, they had gone quiet during that period. That was seen as a, as a positive. Um, the fact that the studios chose to voice their proposal and then kind of bring on counterfire from the WGA is a sign that they're they're really struggling to find common ground on a couple of big issues. Yeah, what was it? The Writers Guild of America was really firing back. I think there was being told they were being lectured and ultimately it feels as though there's there's no meeting the minds here ultimately about the profitability, the take-home money from a lot of these studios and what's ultimately getting into the hands of the writers here. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because the studios did come to the writers with a, a fairly substantial proposal. Um, you know, they, they changed their offer on a number of fronts, but there are a couple of key sticking points, one of which is sort of the share in, in upside, um, and, and another of which is this idea of having a, a minimum number of writers in a room. The studios are saying, why can't that be up to the showrunner, the person in charge of the show, but the writers want the studios to promise that. And, and honestly, it, it reflects a little bit of a lack of trust between some of the writers' members and, uh, or I should say, among different members of the guild. You know, we'd reported that Ted Sarandos, the Netflix co-CEO, and Bob Iger, the Disney CEO, had come in to play a role, but it sounds like it's not helped very much. Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, thank you for the latest on that. Caro? I mean, fascinating as that continues to unfold and the technology angle that is at play here as well with AI and what that means for the future of work within the industry. I'm sad to say that that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, though. Yeah, uh, the big one, aftermarket, NVIDIA, fiscal second quarter earnings. 24 hours from now, you and I will go big on it once again. But we have had a lot in the show, so you can recap. Don't forget to check out the podcast wherever you get your podcasts on the Bloomberg platforms, but also on Apple, Spotify, and iHeart. My goodness, what a week it's been so far. From San Francisco and over in New York, this is Bloomberg Technology. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.